This is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Patrick O'Mara. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, musicians, political leaders, and others. We try to get to know the person behind their work. Our guest today is Dame Hilary Balding, president of Trinity College at the University of Oxford. This year, Dame Hilary is the Brannigan Lecturer for the IU Institute for Advanced Studies, and she is the first international recipient of the Indiana University Bicentennial Medal. Hilary, welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much. You've had a remarkable career as I look at it. In fact, you've had many careers. So let's go back a bit to where it all started. You're a musician. You attended St. Hilda's. You read music. Were you from a musical family? I was. I come from the north of England, and both my parents were very good amateur musicians. My father was a mathematician, but from the age of about 12, he'd developed his piano skills. And I believe at the age of 14, he was running a church choir. And the whole family, I've got three siblings, we all engaged in music making at home. We all learnt the violin, which wasn't very sensible. And I'm sure it's because my parents bought a half-sized violin for the eldest child and then a three-quarter size and then a full size. We weren't wildly well off and we all learnt and used those instruments. But there was a lot of music making at home and my mother taught piano at home. She taught all of us children piano before sending us off to other people because there's only so much a child will do for its parents. There was a lot of music in the house. We all sang in my father's church choir for the whole of our childhood and teenage years. Perhaps without realising it, we learnt an enormous amount of music. And indeed, when I went to Oxford, I suddenly found myself studying pieces of church music in particular that I'd sung since I was six years old without actually really understanding the period in which they were written or their significance. Any choral education is a fantastic education in all sorts of ways. All my siblings carried on with their music making. Most of them became mathematicians, but I do have a sister who taught music in a school throughout her life. My brother was a professor of mathematics. There's something in the genes with music and mathematics. There is, and I'm not quite sure what it is, but I am absolutely convinced that there is a link. And whether it's a particular part of the brain that's used in both, I don't know. I'm sure we will know much more as time goes on. But the other thing I did in childhood was I played in youth orchestras, county orchestras, the British Youth Symphony Orchestra and British Youth Chamber Orchestra. So during my teens, I had a fantastic set of opportunities to play amongst my peer group and really to work out, was this something I wanted to do full time? And whilst I hugely enjoyed it, I would say they were the most vivid experiences of growing up. I knew by the age of 18 that I wasn't in the top rank of my peers. And I knew that whilst I loved playing orchestral music and loved that sense of communal music making, I knew that it would be highly stressful for me to pursue as a career. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just did know I somehow needed to be engaged in music. Well, you're engaged in more ways than one. John Summers, 
<laughs> is the chief executive of one of the world's great orchestras, the Halle, and he's your husband. Mm. So you've kept music going. I've kept music going, and it's an immensely privileged thing to be able to attend so many concerts, particularly of the Halle, which is in fantastic artistic shape. Mark Elder's artistic leadership. And it'll never go away. I find it profoundly moving and it touches me emotionally to hear very high quality performances of music. You go to Oxford, you attend St. Hilda's, carrying on with music, as you've said, and then you graduate. And lo and behold, you've got a plum job in the BBC, a beginning job, but really a great job. Mm. You joined BBC Scotland and then you worked as a television director and a producer. Then you moved to BBC Wales, and it goes on and on. You produced one program that our listeners will love to hear about. It's about a pianist who was on the faculty at this university, a wonderful pianist. Would you like to tell us a little bit about sure. this? The person you're talking about is someone many people will know as George Ballet. He was Cuban by birth. His real pronunciation was Jorge, but throughout the Anglophone world, he put up with us all calling him George. And George Ballet had an extraordinary career. He was professor of piano at Indiana University, and he was an immensely talented artist. He's associated with that grand old piano school of the turn of the 20th century, people like Godofsky and Horowitz and Rachmaninoff himself. George grew up in that school and was in a direct line of descent that you could trace directly back to Franz Liszt. And I guess he was a different generation from that school. He made a significant debut recital at Carnegie Hall. Astonishingly, he had in the audience Rachmaninoff and Horowitz and Hoffman and Godofsky. He pursued an early career Entirely on the continent of America, he played in North America, Central America, South America. But he wasn't known in Europe for all sorts of reasons. And I believe also he was not welcomed by some of the leading critics who found his performance perhaps outmoded for that time. They described it as too romantic. But he did genuinely have a career. And then... In round about 1974, I think it was, he gave a stunning recital at Carnegie Hall, which really sealed his career. And it brought him back into prominence, but critically, it brought him to European and Asian audiences. And the Decca Recording Company took him on a contract with them. And suddenly this man, who was in his 70s at that time, began a truly global career, which is an astonishing thought for someone in their 70s. And this wonderful window of him recording and performing all over the world. I remember him coming to the Edinburgh Festival and suddenly discovering this different kind of piano playing. And of course, we we welcomed it. We were hungry to discover something that was really before our time. And here was this extraordinary man who at that age had sprung onto the international performing world. He recorded in that 12-year window, and as it happened, as a very young television director, I was in my 20s at the time, quite inexperienced, and I had this extraordinary opportunity 
to televise masterclasses with him. And we made four programmes on Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto with two pianists per programme working on a movement with him. He enjoyed it. He had so much to offer. It is wonderful to hear your pianist say, I know the score says that, but I actually heard Rachmaninoff himself do it. And he did it completely in a different way. We discovered this concerto and UK and actually American audiences. I think it was broadcast through the Arts and Entertainment Network in the States. And then he came back the next year and did a similar thing on Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. Both these series culminated in him performing the concerto with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. I just take my hat off to someone who at that age could get to grips with television. These were quite intense programmes and there was nowhere to hide. By the second series, he'd really become more comfortable with the medium. And you learned about Indiana University. I did. He talked very, very warmly of it. He was immensely proud to be part of the faculty here. I'm, I'm trying to think whether we had any of his students from Indiana in the classes, and I, I'm afraid I can't remember. But certainly we had a couple of American students playing who utterly revered him and had trained with him. Then we get to Vladimir Ashkenazi and Glasnost. Mm another major, major figure in the world of music. Yes, indeed. I had done quite a number of television broadcasts with Vladimir Ashkenazi, a great artist. One of the great things about the BBC at that time particularly was we recorded quite a lot of chamber music of solo recitals for broadcast on television, something that's harder to do in today's world on major channels. Ashkenazi was invited, along with a number of other artists, by President Gorbachev to return to the USSR during that period of Glasnost. A number went back and Ashkenazi decided he would go back and he went back with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, of which he was a conductor. And you went with him. And I went with him to make a programme about the visit. It was actually two programmes. One was a documentary which was very touching and very moving because, of course, his father was still alive and living in Moscow. And we visited the flat in which he grew up as a young man and then as a young married man. He married an Icelandic pianist. And he took his children back on that visit. And there was a very touching moment when I remember him pointing out to his eldest child who had been a baby in Moscow. The place where the eldest child slept was in a bookcase in a little oh, really? box. And he pointed and said, that's where we used to put you to sleep. Those sorts of moments are very personal. And one is the program maker, incredibly privileged to be a part of that. We then carried on and he gave two concerts in Moscow. And in the first concert, he conducted the orchestra, but he also played a Beethoven piano concerto directing from the keyboard. And we had expected President Gorbachev to attend the concert because his wife, Raisa Gorbachev, had sponsored the visit. And it was in the Moscow Conservatoire, in that beautiful Tchaikovsky Hall. And the next day, I telephoned my boss at the BBC, 
who is in Scotland, and I said, did everything come out all right? Were you pleased with the programme? And he said, yes, but how strange that you didn't make the obvious connection. And I, I said, what did I miss? And he said, well, the Berlin Wall coming down. And of course, it had come down during the concert and we didn't know about it. And to my knowledge, it wasn't immediately reported in Moscow. But it added that extra frisson of being with a pianist who had left the country when it was the USSR to return at the time the wall was coming down and that very symbolic day. This is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Patrick O'Mara, and our guest today is Dame Hilary Balding, President of Trinity College at the University of Oxford. From the BBC, there's quite a leap as Director of Music, ultimately, for the Arts Council of England. Now, this is a dream job. Hilary, you had money, loads of it, because of the National Lottery. But you also were a formative influence on a musical environment, from orchestras to young people. Let's talk about that job a bit. You wanted to use a wonderful word, by the way, stabilize the music world, the orchestra world which was in disarray. It was. It was a particular moment, and I can't take credit for the stabilisation programme. Indeed, it's an American programme that we had watched from across the ocean. It was a programme that gave large arts, actually, and small arts organisations, a chance to take stock and to work out what was their ambition, what did they want to achieve, what was their raison d'etre in their communities? What were the relationships they perhaps didn't have and wanted to have? And in a sense, at the Arts Council, that programme bought them the thinking time. In some cases, it took up to 18 months for all the thinking, the research, the planning, the stakeholder engagement, relationship building to be brought together in what were very exciting plans. Now, the art sector in the 90s, we really felt the impact of gradually and regularly reducing public subsidy, which comes through the UK government. And for various reasons, that had been reduced over a number of years. And the cumulative impact of that was that organisations couldn't invest in their futures. They could keep going, but... In many ways, that was impacting on the artistic quality. There were a number of things orchestras wanted to change. For instance, they would want contracts that allowed them to use their artistic resources in all sorts of different ways, and they couldn't do it. The contracts were out of date. Some were very restrictive. And yet these organisations didn't have the resources to invest in change. And at that time, the National Lottery Programme was started. It was the brainchild of the Prime Minister at the time, John Major. And it suddenly unlocked and enabled all sorts of ambition. I arrived at the Arts Council at that moment as the Director of Music. So I was a lead officer for eight symphony orchestras at the time and five opera companies. 
we offered all those organisations the opportunity to buy time and to plan. And it was an extraordinary moment because there were significant financial resources. At the time, we knew it was transformational. But when you look at the amazing artistic and business health of those organisations, the vast majority have not looked back. And that was an extraordinary moment that allowed these organisations who were largely performing in traditional settings, in opera houses, in concert halls, but it allowed them to think about all their other possibilities, working in schools, working on different kinds of platforms, working in different ways in their communities. And there was a sea change and that hasn't gone back. So when we look at the orchestras in the UK today, it is absolutely a core part of those organisations' work to engage with schools, to engage in all sorts of ways. You might find a player who's working in prisons or young offender centres. I'm thinking of one particular brass player, symphony orchestra player, who has run in a young offender centre for about 10 years, an extraordinary brass band programme where young inmates of the offender institution are offered the opportunity to learn a brass instrument and play in brass bands. And in some cases, I'm perfectly aware that those young people on exiting this young offender centre have been introduced to brass bands in their community, and it's given them a pathway out. I know of other people, a rather wonderful chorister in Welsh National Opera called Kate Woolridge, who does extraordinary work working with adults with Alzheimer's. The work is so moving. She runs a choir with people suffering from Alzheimer's and their core carer. That might be a spouse, it might be a nurse, it might be a carer from the community, or maybe a niece or nephew. And they come on a Monday night and they sing as a choir. It's extraordinary the power of music to unlock and re-engage them with their previous lives. The music's carefully chosen. This tends to be a generational group who have knowledge of common songs and Kate works with them in these songs, but always uses time in the interval, in the tea break, to allow these people to talk about a memory or maybe an object they've brought in or a photograph and to talk about their lives. And what's quite extraordinary is that that unlocking through music also unlocks other qualities and other skills that perhaps haven't been seen throughout the week. And of course, Pimlico Opera with prisons, that's a remarkable venture on your part. Well, actually, it's really not on my part. I made a programme about Pimlico's work. Pimlico Opera was founded by a dynamic woman called Wasfikani, who Incidentally, I met when I was a student at university. I knew her as a terrifically talented violinist. And Wasfi went on to create an opera company, Pimlico, which did and I believe continues to do a lot of work in prisons. She'll take some professional singers for the lead roles and will work with inmates in a prison setting to create a performance. And I first came across her work actually in Wandsworth Prison, when she did West Side Story. And it was 
absolutely clear that this was having a transformational impact in the life of the prison, not just for those people who took part. And I was very interested in it. I was commissioned by the BBC to make a documentary of a later production, Guys and Dolls, which was also in Wandsworth Prison. And I witnessed at first hand that extraordinary transformation and the impact of performance and taking part in music making and theatre, because it's a musical theatre piece, in the lives of people who perhaps had never engaged in any of the arts. We saw all those qualities that the arts can bring to people's lives. So an increase in self-esteem, an increase in confidence, the ability to sing, to act, to work collaboratively with others, to support each other, to respond to each other in all sorts of ways. And it culminated in, I think, 10 nights of performance in the prison. Many, many people came into the prison to watch the performance. They included the inmates' families, of course, but they also included prison governors from other prisons to have a look at the work. They included government ministers who were interested to see the impact. And it was an extraordinary occasion to watch that happen. It wasn't universally popular with all the prison officers and the prison staff, but some staff could absolutely see the benefits. And incidentally, we got a great documentary from it, but for me it is absolute testament to the power of the arts to change lives. This is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Patrick O'Mara, and I'm delighted today to welcome this year's Brannigan Lecturer for the IU Institute for Advanced Studies and President of the University of Oxford's Trinity College, Dame Hilary Balding. From here, you move to the Welsh National Conservatoire. And I'm putting it mildly, they were remarkable years. It was everything from changing the profile of the conservatoire to building buildings and to globalizing the student body and to opening music to a large, large new constituency. I'd really like to hear more about all of these. Should we start with your first arrival and grow what happened? Yes. I came into that job from the Arts Council. So I was moving from a bureaucracy I don't necessarily think bureaucracies are bad things, but they do get a bad press. From the Arts Council to the higher education sector, I was moving into a principal's role, which is a chief executive, but moving into what was essentially an arts organisation. A conservatoire is a training organisation. It provides vocational training and supports young emerging artists to develop the skills to allow them to have a successful career as an arts performer generally or an arts practitioner. The Royal Welsh College is a wonderful institution. It's in Cardiff in the capital city in Wales. And we took student musicians, actors, stage managers, theatre designers, arts managers, and we added musical theatre later on. It's a small college, round about 800 students. Around 25% come from Wales. The majority come from the rest of the UK. And I guess about 15% international 
students. We ran undergraduate programs and postgraduate programs. But what we were doing was really training people for the next generation of arts employment. Now, I came from the Arts Council where I had had that opportunity to see the arts infrastructure changing itself and identifying a whole raft of new roles and therefore new skills and also finding ways to use their artists on a wide range of platforms. And so I was aware when I came to the Conservatoire that actually we had to understand these changes in the industry and make sure that we were preparing young people to be successful in a changed and still changing industry. That was an incredibly exciting moment. We also, at the same time, knew that we needed better facilities. We had poor facilities when I arrived, and it had long been an ambition to bring the Conservatoire appropriate performance facilities. And within five years of me arriving, we opened a beautiful new chamber recital hall, the Dora Stoutska Hall, the Richard Burton Theatre, which the family was so generous to allow us to name after Richard Burton. I think we should emphasise that for our audience. It's not the explorer in Victorian times. It's Richard Burton, the actor. Yes, uh, yes, you're quite right. We opened a gallery, public facilities and some beautiful purpose-built rehearsal rooms. That suddenly gave us the opportunity to bring our work to a wider public. All conservatoires run extensive performance programmes, but we weren't reaching audiences at that time largely because we didn't have the facilities to invite them in. But as we also explored how these young artists were going to work on a wider canvas as professionals, this gave us a a fantastic opportunity to run the college in addition to being a conservator, to run it as a public arts centre. And that became the training ground. And it exploded the contact we had with school children, with the public in Cardiff and sometimes beyond Cardiff. It allowed us to open up new training programmes. We introduced a young actors programme, which we'd never had in the past. We'd always run a junior music conservatoire, but suddenly we could expand our training at weekends to involve the local community. And indeed, at one point, we became aware that we had students travelling in from so far afield that we flipped it and every weekend now teachers from that conservatoire travel to West Wales and they run the same programmes as satellite programmes of the college in West Wales so that youngsters there can have easier access. In doing so, that actually also allowed us to reach young people who would never have considered themselves people who would travel to Cardiff. It's a two-hour train journey and it allowed us to make our services much more immediately accessible to a much wider public. So it was a virtuous circle. Our students had a public outlet for their work. Anyone who performs knows that audiences change your work. You can perform a drama 10 nights in a row and have different responses from different audiences. So our students were really getting a replica of a professional experience. For us, it was one of the distinctive qualities of our conservatoire. We were, and they are still, I know, very proud of that set of distinctive ways in which their conservatoire delivers its work. Yes. But you also did new things. 
Your drama program is extraordinary. You were ranked, what, best in the country? We were ranked in the Guardian League tables, higher education subject league tables, as the top drama program in the UK for four years in a row. The Conservatoire had always had an exceptionally high With quality. With Hopkins. Well, interesting. Anthony Hopkins is an alumnus of the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. Interestingly, Hopkins studied music at the college, but he is a vice president of the college. And I was there one day when he visited the students. And, you know, those visits are absolutely inspirational for students. It was a wonderful visit. We didn't publicise it. In fact, he came at two hours notice And we simply walked into the classes that were taking place with the actors. And they were in this extraordinary position with their tutors as well of suddenly seeing the door open and in comes Sir Anthony Hopkins. He was wonderful with them. And in one case, he said, would you mind if I just said a few words about this role? And they had an amazing experience. Actually, I think all higher education institutions, and I'm sure the University of Indiana is the same, when these great artists, and in some cases great alumni of our programmes come back, there is an absolutely extraordinary moment because you see young people meeting people who have been their role models, their inspiration, and it certainly makes a difference. I attended a masterclass with a number of major stars of stage who have come here, and the electricity was enormous in terms of the student response, which is the point you're raising. Yes, yes. Hilary, you know, you've placed a lot of your graduates, which is amazing, 90% of them, as I look at the statistics, within six months are getting jobs. That's because you changed the profile, right? I think it's to do with a lot of things. We worked very hard to make sure that, first of all, students were being exposed to the profession during their training. We also treated them as professionals and we expected them to respond as professionals. In many courses, students could do a professional placement in the industry, and that might mean stage managers doing a three-month placement at the National Theatre in London, or it might mean theatre designers working in the BBC TV Doctor Who creative team for a placement. It might mean attending and taking part for instrumentalists in rehearsals with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales or the Orchestra of Welsh National Opera. We worked very hard to make sure that students were exposed to the profession. For our actors... They met with casting directors during their final year. All our actors had a professional showcase at the Royal Court Theatre in London and also in Cardiff, to which we invited casting directors from television, from the theatre. We exposed our students to agents. They were professionally presented, and many, many of them in the next few weeks were signed to an artist's agent. We also... In the case of theatre design students, we exhibited their work over four days in London, did the same thing. We invited in our production directors from the theatres and from television to see their work. And our own students who'd gone into the profession where they were in a position to offer an internship, we invited them and encouraged them to do so. 
and they were very generous. So that sense of a college community of both emerging students and alumni was something that was very strong and really worked. But also our arts management students tended to try and beat their own record every year. And sometimes, I think the best one was in three months, the entire cohort was employed in the arts industry as arts managers in some way or another. But that's also, I think today we have a huge obligation to students who are in most cases going into debt to pay for their education. We have an obligation to make sure that they're leaving with relevant skills, fully prepared to be successful, to enter their chosen profession. Two other things about the Conservatoire. You were pretty daring to start an opera programme from scratch, I assume, more or less. Actually, we had an opera programme and for some reason we didn't have a relationship with Welsh National Opera, which lives in the same city. One of the most powerful developments, I think, in improving what we offered to our students and diversifying the training was the partnerships that we enjoyed with the profession. So in Cardiff, we had Welsh National Opera. We had the BBC that had a major music and drama production centre in Cardiff. We had two national theatres in Cardiff, a number of smaller theatre companies. We had opportunities. And with WNO, it really unlocked what we could offer our students. So we used many of their employees as our tutors. We also brought in great artists from outside Wales who travelled in every week to teach. Welsh National Opera had always offered the college an orchestral placement scheme. So young instrumentalists would sit in rehearsals, occasionally play in rehearsals, and get the feel for what it's like to sit in a pit and go through rehearsal sessions. And of course, because this is a company that tours productions for several weeks of the year, if there was sickness in the orchestra, quite often they would ring the college and employ that student in the orchestra professionally to cover sickness. That really paved the way for a much closer engagement with the singers in the company. And we've seen year groups where each singer in the college opera had a mentor from WNO's chorus who would watch the dress rehearsal, provide performance notes before the first performance, and would just advise on their rehearsal practice and their rehearsal behaviour. We also found, as we built confidence and trust between our organisations, Welsh National Opera at one point cast the three boys in Mozart's Magic Flute with three girls from our opera programme. And occasionally they found roles, small roles and distinctive roles for our students. They also set up a youth opera company, which was run by Welsh National Opera in the summer vacations. And many, many of our students took part in that, which allowed the company to see them develop. And then latterly, the college has formally launched a new opera school in partnership with Welsh National Opera. And we were thrilled that the director of that programme, John Fisher, who was assistant general manager at the Metropolitan Opera, has come across to Cardiff to lead that programme. So having left the college, I watched with huge interest to see that flourish and thrive. Let me go to the future. In the arts... Is the future global? 
I think it is in most branches of the arts. We live in a much more connected world and there's a lot of touring and sharing of productions, particularly in the commercial sector, the commercial theatre, commercial musical theatre, that these productions travel worldwide and quite often have long-running productions over a year or more in different cities. So yes, it's global and we do need to understand global doesn't necessarily mean there's unanimity. There are great cultural differences. One of the things artists need to be aware of is when they're working in a global market, how to navigate that and understand different practices, the behavior of different audiences, audiences respond in different ways, and the working practices. We had great fun in the field of stage management where we discovered that the American system uses stage managers in different ways, demarcates different parts of the role that we call stage management into different roles. And a colleague of mine had great fun producing a translation guide for anyone working in the U.S., industry as a stage manager to help us understand the different terminology and the different roles. Many artists today are part of global networking groups, professional networking groups, and there's a lot of exchange at that level through different craft disciplines. We see in television, don't we, that a program that works in one country tends to be reformatted, rescripted, and represented for different audiences. Humour quite often doesn't transfer, doesn't translate. When I worked in television, when we made programmes in co-productions with international broadcasters, there was a lot of discussion about whether it was possible to make one version of the programme or whether it should be reformatted for different audiences. It's absolutely right and something to celebrate that our cultural tastes are different. The world would be a very dull place if they weren't. Hilary, let me ask you about 2017 and the Queen's Birthday Honours List. This is pre-Trinity. So this is a culmination. You're receiving the title for the achievements of the BBC and Cardiff. I was awarded a damehood, which was an enormous honour, and I'm incredibly proud and honoured to receive it. It was particularly for my work in education and the cultural sector in Wales. While I was in Wales, I took part in a number of different government review programmes. I was very pleased to be a part of a review of the arts in education in schools in Wales. I was part at another time of a music review of schools music and music infrastructure in Wales. And I was also part of a broadcasting advisory group to the First Minister of Wales. And I think the honour was really reflecting all that work. I think it's hard to separate the arts sector from education because if we don't introduce every child to the arts and to creativity as part of their formative education, many will not have the chance to be introduced later in life. And one of the outcomes of the review that was chaired by Di Smith, a review of arts in education in Wales, one of the outcomes was that the Welsh Government is introducing a new school curriculum which places the arts and creativity at the heart of the school curriculum. I think it's a bold move, I think it's innovative, I think it's exciting 
And it will be something that I think will transform all sorts of parts of the educational system. We need scientists to be creative if they haven't been able to develop that skill of exploring the unknown, the unseen, working with a blank sheet of paper. The confidence and the engagement and the excitement about doing that needs to be fostered at a much earlier age. And the arts are brilliant at doing that. This is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Patrick O'Mara, and our guest today is Dame Hilary Balding, President of Trinity College at the University of Oxford. You're a pioneering woman, and gosh, 462 years of male domination of Trinity College. You come in in 2016 as the first woman appointee. It's absolutely mind-boggling. You come into the College of the Holy and Undivided Trinity, one of the constituent colleges of Oxford, male-dominated, three prime ministers, notable students in every area. Were you in your right mind? (laughs) Well, let's put this back in proportion. I'm the first woman president of Trinity College in its history, but I'm not the first woman head of an Oxford college. And those numbers are growing. There are now 13 of us. And so I joined a group of heads of house who had already been, in their case, the first women heads of house quite often of a previously all-male college. 40 years ago, almost, not quite, but almost every Oxford college was co-educational. And indeed, that's an issue that many colleges are currently celebrating The undergraduate population in Oxford in Trinity College is broadly 50-50. It bounces one way or the other because we don't have any quotas, but it should come as no surprise that it's broadly even men and women. The faculty, because of the history of the college, is less balanced, but it is changing. And we welcome and we recruit entirely on merit and see increasingly an even recruitment of men and women as we fill new jobs and vacant posts. So Oxford has changed a lot. I've had nothing but a warm welcome, and I think I'd have had that as a man or a woman. But I have been to events where I have been the only woman, perhaps events with our alumni. And I suppose I found it very strange because I'd never been in that position, which just shows you how much our world has changed. But I do also think it's worth celebrating women at Oxford. The portraiture around Oxford is typically very male. Our graduate students wanted to do an exhibition of women graduates in the college because they said they couldn't see themselves reflected in the historic portraits around the college. And for two years, we had this wonderful exhibition of women graduates. It was a talking point. It was something we enjoyed celebrating. I enjoyed it when we brought school parties in to be able to make sure that young girls in school groups could see that it was possible for women to be there. There was a very funny experience. We had a primary school who had travelled from Pontypridd in Wales to have a day in Oxford and I was hosting their visit. They were very little children, about seven or eight years old. 
We brought them into the college dining hall. There were all these portraits of the college's women graduates. And, you know, we think of these as young women because they're from the recent past. And I said to this little group, what do you notice if you look around the pictures on the walls? What do you notice? And little girl thrust her hand up and I said, yes, what do you notice? And she said, they're all very old. (laughs) (laughs) We need to get some younger faces up again, I think. But interestingly, we do a lot of work at Trinity with our students. We've got at least 60 student ambassadors who lead visitors, parties of visitors, and they give those visitors often aspiring applicants, their impressions of Oxford. It is very important to us that the students are our best ambassadors for the university. I'm sure our audience would be interested. The college goes back really to Sir Thomas Pope and the English Reformation. It was originally a Benedictine monastery. Durham Cathedral was part of this. And so we start off with a bit of a rogue, actually, right? Well, Thomas Pope was working for Henry VIII as part of that Reformation, and he closed Durham College. I think there were very few monks at the time, something like 12 monks in residence, and they were sent back to Durham. A few years later, Thomas Pope wanted to found a college of his own, and he came back to those buildings at what was Durham College, and he founded Trinity College. They were certainly turbulent times. Very interestingly, he was outlived by his third wife, the Lady Elizabeth Pope. She played a role in the college. And so whilst I am the first female president of the college, I'm very conscious of this incredibly brave woman in those early days who played a role in the college, was not favoured by Elizabeth I because Lady Elizabeth Pope was a practising Catholic. She was a brave woman, clearly. I'm very mindful that the college was not always a very safe place in those early years and it lived through turbulent times. Completely different place today, but amazingly we still have those medieval buildings at the heart of the college. And indeed, we have a very historic old library in those buildings, which is still at the heart of the college. Lady Elizabeth survived the tower. She did. I understand that the story goes that Elizabeth I was going to imprison Elizabeth Pope for practising as a Catholic. And Elizabeth Pope offered money in reparations to escape the tower, which she did successfully, though I believe Elizabeth I sent her men to strip the college of its college silver. But they were turbulent times. Again, for the benefit of the audience, Trinity's a familiar place because of Brideshead, the television series of Brideshead Revisited, and also for Inspector Morse. It's going to be even more interesting because you are adding on to Trinity a new wing. Remember that Sir Christopher Wren designed part of this, and you're now expanding in an innovative new way. We are. It's a very exciting moment. Trinity's interesting geographically. It's right in the heart of the city of Oxford. But unlike many colleges, it's one of the few that's not surrounded by high walls. You can see through the gates and through the railings on two sides of the college. And that sense of transparency and being open is something we are keen to develop. 
There have long been plans for an expansion of the college buildings on the college site, particularly because we want to be able to offer our graduate students in their first year residential accommodation in the heart of the college. And a new building is going to allow us to do that. So there will be study bedrooms in this building. But we're also creating a really beautiful lecture theatre, which will double as a performance hall. We're creating larger rooms, which we don't currently have. And crucially, quite odd in an Oxford college, we're opening a cafe for the whole community because one of the traditions in Oxford is that the different communities, the undergraduate community, the graduate community and the senior academic community all have separate common rooms and in some cases they eat separately. And we wanted to create a space, a gathering ground and a social space where we could see each other more often. I'm very keen for our students, particularly the undergraduates, to become aware of these extraordinary academics who are living and working around them. And of course, students will meet tutors in their own discipline. But I wanted them also to be able to experience the work of the wider academic community. We have extraordinarily talented academics. And this new building will give us a platform for their work. It'll give us social spaces where we can meet each other. And it will also give us spaces we can use to bring in school parties, which is an increasingly large part of our work. You're also doing something else that's new. And I want to read from your diversity statement. Our vision is for Trinity to be recognised as a modern college that welcomes a diverse and widely representative community in which the best UK and international students, academics and staff will flourish, essentially, will be supported and flourish. And you want to do this with fairness and inclusivity. And you see no conflict between academic influence and this and academic stature. That's a tough question. Oxford has a reputation for being elite in every sense. Selection, scholarship, faculty. I think this is an incredibly important statement, by the way. And the question is, how do you do it? And can you do it? Undoubtedly, we can do it. There are colleges in Oxford who have achieved that already. The whole university is united in trying to make this happen. We don't currently reflect in appropriate proportion the different groups within our society, different ethnic groups, students from different social backgrounds. And it is a prime ambition of the whole university to do that. And within five years, we are hoping that a quarter of our student intake will come from currently underrepresented and disadvantaged backgrounds. We've set ourselves challenging targets. Oxford has been moving towards achieving that balance and more appropriate representation of our society over the last few years. But we recognise we need to move faster to achieve it. There are all sorts of programmes that show that if we can get to those young people and support them to make strong applications, that these young people have the skills and have the talent and the potential to thrive at Oxford. Many universities are doing the same thing, but Oxford's a leader. It's currently ranked top in the global rankings for the fourth year in a row. We must lead by example.
So this is something we take very seriously. And it's something many people have a huge appetite to be a part of and to help make happen. Oxford runs an extraordinarily successful programme in summer and now Easter vacations where we identify young people who've had perhaps disrupted educations or disadvantaged educations whose schools think that these students have potential and have the talent to thrive at the highest levels. And they come and spend time in Oxford during the summer vacations and they are introduced to subject tutors and the subjects they're interested in. They spend a week in college, they eat together, they get a sense of what life in college is about. They get over the hurdle of coming into this very distinctive historic environment and they get over that hurdle. They do practice interviews, they are supported to write strong personal statements that do themselves justice. And then they go into the same admissions process that everybody goes through. And one in four of those students in the last few years has earned their place on their own merits. Now, we know that's a drop in the ocean. Whilst we've expanded the numbers we can take on those courses, we're all also now about to run a range of different programmes. Next year, we're introducing a bridging programme which has already been piloted in which we're identifying students who should be able to get through on their merits and on their grades, but who we think we could give additional support to help settle them in and to help even over the summer vacation before they arrive to help them have access to an enriched curriculum that they may not have had at school. We're also working with teachers to help teachers understand how they can support students to make a strong application. These are students who will achieve or overachieve the grades that they're being asked to achieve. We need to bring down barriers. We need to change perceptions that Oxford may not be a place for people like me. We need to encourage those students to put themselves forward. We're very committed to it. It's hugely important. We also need to know that they all have things to offer other students. I think our students understand that a diverse world is a more stimulating world. It allows people to learn from each other. And a lot of learning for young people is peer learning. My life has been involved with British academics on and off, friends and others. They're not easy people. I read book reviews in the London Times and I think, gosh, there's no milk of human kindness there. And of course, it's justified because of their stature in many cases. I don't know how one penetrates that hierarchy. Do you have any thoughts? Well, I've met colleagues who are working at the highest levels of research in their disciplines globally, who have also said, I would never give up teaching undergraduates because I want to stay connected to this next generation. So we see tutors who may be doing extraordinary work at the forefront of their disciplines, who also have a commitment to those coming into university education. And that's the hope. And to be honest, if I look across my colleagues, I would say that is a shared view. They're immensely generous to young people coming through. I think they're stimulated by young people coming through. So when we identify our common ambitions, we can be a very powerful force. Are you dealing with new technology actively in administering Trinity? 
Yes, 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 yes. I think that's the answer in different ways in different disciplines. And of course, the scientific research that's going on demands that particularly. We do have the ability now to be able to track. It's a bit clunky, but I would like to be able to track young people who perhaps have contact with the university through one of its outreach programs and then find out, did they come back for something else? Did that lead them to make an application? Were they successful in the application? That technology is there, actually. Security of personal data is an issue, and we're all grappling with what's appropriate and what is illegal. But I think it is important for us to be able to track, is the work we're doing in schools, with teachers, with young people, effective? And we certainly need to evaluate that constantly. And technology allows us to do that. But of course, all the developments in artificial intelligence having a relevance in all sorts of different ways in different subjects. I'd hasten to add, I don't see a point where Oxford doesn't admit its students with human beings on the other end of the system. Hilary, you're going off to a canonization. Is this your first saint? (laughs) It is my first saint. (laughs) It's certainly my first canonization event. This is a very exciting moment. One of Trinity's alumni, Cardinal John Henry Newman, is being canonized by the Pope and I'm one of a group of people who are representing Trinity. He attended Trinity. He attended Trinity as an undergraduate and our archivist at Trinity is absolutely clear that he made a very big connection with Trinity. It was a great emotional connection and we're immensely proud and excited that we are going to have a saint amongst our alumni. In the words of Guys and Dolls, a good old genuine saint. This is going to be very exciting. We're currently publishing a little pamphlet. We get hundreds of tourists each year coming through the college and we're publishing a little pamphlet to let them walk in his footsteps. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Our guest today has been Dame Hilary Balding. This is Profiles on WFIU. Thank you, Hilary. Thank you. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.